Okay, everybody, um, a very, very warm welcome to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. Um, it's a very great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, who is Adrian Haddock from Stirling. Um, Adrian works on subjectivity in various forms, and in particular, its significance for understanding the fundamental concerns of philosophy. Um, this focus previously has produced some wonderful work on action and on perception, and it's currently the focus of a book manuscript on self-consciousness and objectivity. Um, this evening, his talk is entitled The Wonder of Signs. Just before I hand over to Adrian, a couple of things. There is in the chat a link to his handout, and he's going to be referring to the um, to the numbered uh, claims on that handout. So it's well worth getting that up um, if you can find access to it. If you have a problem, then maybe just let us know in the chat and we'll try and sort that out. Secondly, the format, we, Adrian will talk for about an hour. We'll have a short break, 10 minutes or so, and then there'll be a Q&A. And I'll take questions using, if you don't mind, the, um, the raised hand uh, facility on Zoom, which is in the participants bar. So if you go to the participants bar at that point, at the bottom, you'll see that you can raise your hand and I'll take those in turn. Okay, so um, without further ado, as I say, it's a very great pleasure to introduce Adrian Haddock. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. And it's great to, to be here, whatever exactly that means. In 1956, the following problem was set as a competition in the journal Analysis. It is impossible to be told anyone's name, for if I am told that man's name is Smith, his name is mentioned, not used, and I hear the name of his name, but not his name. We owe this problem to G.E.M. Anscombe, and it raises a very general difficulty. The difficulty is this, understanding a sentence in which a linguistic expression is quoted involves identifying the expression in that it involves knowing what expression it is. And this identification is afforded by perceiving the sentence and in so doing perceiving the expression. But because an expression that is quoted in a sentence is mentioned but not used therein, it is not perceived in perceiving the sentence. So there's no such thing as understanding a sentence in which an expression is quoted. This means that it's impossible to be told anyone's name through a sentence in which the name is quoted. But more fundamentally, it means that language cannot take itself as its topic through quotation at all. This difficulty rests on the following principle. What is mentioned but not used in a sentence is not perceived in perceiving the sentence. We might elaborate this principle as follows. What is used in a sentence is what is spoken in speaking it, and so what's heard in hearing it. Or equally, it's what's written in writing it, and so what's read in reading it. The sense of perceiving that figures in the principle just is that of hearing what is spoken or reading what is written. 
let's group these activities, speaking and hearing what's spoken, writing and reading what's written under the head of articulating and say that what is used in a sentence is what is articulated in articulating it. The principle is that what is mentioned but not used in a sentence is not articulated in articulating it. We can see the truth of this principle by considering the sentence, this is one on the handout, that man's name is Smith. Ascombe's problem assumes that what is used in one is not the man's name, but the name of his name. When Anscombe speaks of names, she usually means simply singular referring expressions of some kind. We might think that the expression in one that refers to the man's name has the following features. It refers to a linguistic expression, it opens and closes with a pair of inverted commas, and it is otherwise composed of a series of letters. We might call such an expression a quotation. So understood, the quotation in one is distinct from the name that it refers to. A moment in Lewis Carroll makes this distinctness vivid. In chapter eight of Through the Looking Glass, the white knight sings Alice a song and tells her first that the song is called The Aged, Aged Man, and second, that the name of the song is called Haddock's Eyes. In one, the man's name is called Smith. And because this name, is distinct from the man's name. The man's name is no more articulated in articulating one than the song's name is articulated in articulating two. That song's name is Haddock's Eyes. The quotation in one might be a name in the more specific sense of a referring expression whose composition plays no role in fixing its reference, and which refers to its object in a manner that does not depend on the context of its historical occurrence, its occurrence on someone's lips at some time. Haddock's eyes would be a name in this sense, and insofar as such a name is distinct from its object, to articulate it is not to articulate its object. Alternatively, the quotation in one might be an abbreviation or a definite description that comprises quotations that refer to letters, where these quotations are themselves names in this more specific sense. Such an expression equally refers to its object in a manner that doesn't depend on the context of its historical occurrence, but unlike such a name, its reference is fixed by the meanings of its elements and how these are combined. But the conclusion is not substantially affected. For example, one might be rendered as three. That man's name is the result of articulating S, followed by M, followed by I, followed by T, followed by H. And in articulating three, neither the object of the definite description nor the objects of the names that compose the description are themselves articulated. Suppose, however, that the expression in one that refers to the man's name is not what we've called a quotation, but merely that which plays the role of the quotation marks, namely the pair of inverted commas. That would be the view of Donald Davidson, who holds that what plays this role in a quoting sentence refers to the quoted expression in the manner of a demonstrative, 
through pointing either to an inscription or if the sentence is spoken to an utterance of the expression. Davidson's account would invite us to render one as four. That man's name is this, Smith. This rendering points up two salient features of the account. First, the quoted expression is not used in the quoting sentence. The office of the dot after the demonstrative in four is to mark the exclusion of the man's name from this sentence. And second, the quoted expression is nonetheless articulated in articulating this, the sentence. For the man's name is articulated in articulating four. This second feature reflects the fact that understanding a demonstrative involves perceiving its object. And because the object of the demonstrative before the dot in four is a linguistic expression, the operative sense of perceiving is that of what I have been calling articulating. The articulation of the quoted expression is internal to the capacity of the quoting sentence to perform its semantic function. Only through articulating the man's name after the dot is it possible to understand the demonstrative before the dot as referring to his name. As such, it is not true in general that what is mentioned but not used in a sentence is not articulated in articulating it. The principle upon which the difficulty rests is false, or so Davidson's account seems to show. We can think of the difficulty as seeking to point up the incompatibility of two functions that are often thought to characterize quotation. First, the picturing function, that of ensuring that the quoted expression is articulated in articulating the quoting sentence and as such perceived in perceiving the sentence in the operative sense of perceiving. And second, the referential function, that of referring to the quoted expression. It has been said that quotation performs the second function by performing the first. Quine remarked that a quotation designates its object by picturing it. But the difficulty is that the second function usurps the first. Or so it seems. By understanding the office of quotation as performed by a demonstrative, Davidson's account promises to dissolve this appearance and with it the difficulty by understanding quotation as performing its referential function in a manner that involves articulating the quoted expression. But Davidson's account is a con. And we can bring this out by reflecting on the very idea of demonstrative reference. Articulating with understanding a demonstrative identifies its object in a manner that is original, in that it is not mediated by any other manner of identifying its object. If it consists in saying, or perhaps in writing the demonstrative, then it identifies its object in that it constitutes a potential answer to a potential what question that concerns its object. Whereas if it consists in hearing, or perhaps in reading the demonstrative, then it identifies its object in that it constitutes hearing or reading such an answer. We find this kind of question and answer in a dialogue of the following form. Something is F, what is F? This G. Here the answer identifies the object in that it distinguishes it from everything else of its kind and as such from everything else. And it does so in a manner that is original 
in that it is not mediated by any other manner of identifying the object. Contrast a name in the specific sense introduced earlier, whose reference is fixed by a demonstrative. Articulating with understanding such a name equally identifies its object in that it equally either constitutes a potential answer or constitutes hearing or reading such an answer to a potential what question that concerns its object. We find this kind of question and answer in a dialogue of the following form. Something is F, what is F? A, a G. This answer equally identifies the object in that it equally distinguishes it from everything else of its kind and as such from everything else, but it does not do so in a manner that is original because its manner of identifying the object is mediated by the different manner of identifying it that is afforded by the demonstrative that fixes the reference of the name. In general, the reference of a name is fixed by something whose comprehending articulation originally identifies its object. And this provides for the possibility of explaining the reference of the name in a manner that's informative, in that it identifies its object not through the name, but through that which fixes its reference, a demonstrative, for example. It's only because this possibility is provided for that articulating with understanding a name can be said to identify its object at all. On the face of it, the office of one is to explain the reference of the name that it concerns in just this informative manner. As we might put it, a demonstrative identifies its object in an original manner, whereas a name identifies its object in a manner that's not original. That is to represent the referring expression as achieving what, in a fuller description, is achieved not merely by the expression, but by articulating it with understanding. But articulating a referring expression does not merely help to identify its object. It equally identifies the expression and it does so in a manner that is original, in that it is not mediated by any other manner of identifying the expression. If the articulation consists in saying or writing the expression, then it identifies it in that it constitutes a potential answer to a potential what question that concerns the expression. Whereas if it consists in hearing or reading the expression, then it identifies it in that it constitutes hearing or reading such an answer to such a question. This kind of question and answer is different from the kinds that we considered above. But it is familiar in life and in literature. And here's an example from the latter. Perhaps it was chiefly with a diplomatic design to linger and ingratiate himself that Deronda patted the boy's head saying, what is your name, Sarah? Jacob Alexander Cohen, said the small man, with much ease and distinctness. Here the boy answers the question, not by demonstrating his name, but by saying his name. In general, this kind of question and answer consists in a what question that concerns an expression, which is to be answered not by saying or writing an expression that refers to the expression, but by saying or writing the expression. Such an answer identifies the expression in that it distinguishes it from every other expression, but not by referring to it, rather by articulating it. As we might put it, an expression identifies itself in a manner that is original. That is to represent the expression as achieving what, in a fuller description, is achieved not merely by the expression, but by its articulation. 
it's tempting to think that understanding the rendering of one that Davidson's account invites us to give, namely four, depends on articulating and in so doing identifying the name after the dot. In reading four, for example, we read into Alia this name. In reading the name, we identified it, we identify it. And because we have identified it in this manner, we are able to understand the demonstrative before the dot as referring to it. To understand the demonstrative as referring to the name is to identify the name by articulating it. And on the basis of this articulatory identification, to understand the demonstrative as referring to it. Or so we might think. But then the so-called demonstrative is not a demonstrative at all, because the manner of identification that it affords is not original, but mediated by an articulatory identification of its object. Only insofar as understanding the demonstrative does not rest on articulating its object, can its bona fides as a demonstrative be sustained. But then Davidson's account faces a dilemma. If understanding the putative demonstrative before the dot in four rests on articulating its object, then it's not a demonstrative, because its manner of identifying its object is not original, but mediated by an articulatory identification of the name. But if, I, but if understanding the putative demonstrative does not rest on articulating its object, then Davidson's account does not live up to its promise of understanding quotation as performing its referential function in a manner that involves articulating the quoted expression. The con in Davidson's account comes in its inviting us to render one as four, because four is naturally understood in a manner that the account must preclude. On the first horn of this dilemma, Davidson's account falls apart. And on the second horn, even though it remains intact, it is powerless to dissolve our difficulty. It promised to dissolve it by exposing the falsity of the principle on which it rests through making the articulation of the quoted expression internal to the quotation marks capacity to refer demonstratively to it. But it transpires on reflection that the articulation of the quoted expression cannot be internal to this if the marks are to refer demonstratively to the expression. On this horn of the dilemma, although the demonstrative character of the quotation marks in one fixes it that understanding them involves perceiving their putative object, the sense of perceiving that figures in this last formulation cannot be that of articulating a linguistic expression. As we might put it, it must be merely that of being given an object in some way, a kind of perception that's not a matter of reading what's written or hearing what's spoken at all. The idea that Davidson's account exposes the falsity of the principle with which we began is, I think, an illusion. It's not clear that the principle can be denied. But if it can't be, and if the identification of the expression quoted in a sentence is to be afforded by articulating the sentence and in so doing articulating the expression, it seems that the quoted expression must be used in the quoting sentence. And that seems to generate absurd results. For example, it seems that if the man's name were used in one, then one would say that a certain man's name 
is a certain man. If it belongs to a quotation to perform a picturing function, then it's hard to see how language can take itself as its topic through quotation at all. Each of the accounts of quotation that we've considered so far assumes that quotation performs its office through an expression that refers in the manner of a referring expression of a recognized kind, either in that of a name, in the specific sense, or a definite description or a demonstrative. And just for this reason, it might seem that an alternative is possible, namely to understand quotation as performing its office through a referring expression of a unique kind specifically through one that's constituted as the referring expression it is, simply on account of its falling under an elementary rule. The rule that, this is on the handout, the denotation of the result of enclosing any expression in quotes is the expression itself. But this cannot address the concern of the difficulty. The difficulty is concerned with what is understood in understanding a quoting sentence and a fortiori with the identification of the quoted expression that understanding such a sentence involves. Each of the accounts of quotation that we considered address this concern by understanding the identification as afforded by a referring expression that refers to its object in a certain manner. And because they each address the concern in this way, they each failed to make sense of the identification as afforded by articulating the quoted expression. The problem with the present Alternative is not merely that it does nothing to show that the identification is afforded in this manner. Because it elevates its disregard of the question of how the referring expression refers to its object into a point of principle, it bypasses the concern with what is understood in understanding a quoting sentence. Um, um, an influential version of this alternative makes this vivid. Um, it casts the rule into the following self-explanatory notation. This is um, five on the handout, which I'm, I'm not going to read out. Uh, and it goes on to suggest as an instance of five, um, six on the handout, which I'm also not going to read out. It would be a mistake to think that in articulating six, we articulate the familiar English word before. As the variable in five ranges over expressions, its replacements are terms that refer to expressions. So what we articulate in articulating six is not the quoted expression or even the quotation, but an expression comprising a term, namely quot, that refers to the quotation marks, and another term, namely before, that refers to the quoted expression, whatever it is. This version of the alternative might be thought to speak to the concern of the difficulty um, for the following reason. Um, it claims that the rule um, belongs to a theory of meaning for a language of the sort advanced by Davidson. So it claims that knowing the truth expressed by the rule and being able to derive from this truth in the context of knowledge of the rest of the theory, the truths expressed by instances such as six, claims that that is to suffice for understanding sentences of the language involving quotation, and so for identifying the expressions quoted in these sentences. And it might seem that insofar as it does suffice for this, the rule sheds some light on what is understood in understanding these sentences. But knowing the truth expressed by an instance of the rule, such as six, 
does not suffice for understanding any sentence involving quotation. On the contrary, it suffices for understanding a distinct sentence, not involving quotation, which is about a quoting sentence, and specifically about the quotation in such a sentence. What is understood in understanding a quoting sentence is not expressed by any instance of the rule. Uh, contrast Davidson's account of quotation. Although it ultimately fails to dissolve the difficulty, it does at least speak to its concern, for it would hold that what's understood in understanding one is expressed by the rendering that it invites us to give, namely by four. The picturing function of quotation usurps its supposed referential function. That is the lesson of the difficulty. Davidson's account tried to have it both ways through the idea that quotation consists in the demonstration and as such in the articulation of the quoted expression. But because articulating an expression itself serves to identify it, this idea comes to nothing. As we put it earlier, an expression identifies itself. We brought this out through the idea of a what question that concerns the expression, which is to be answered by articulating the expression. In answering such a question, the expression is articulated in a context that is equally articulated. And this idea of articulating an expression in an equally articulated context is the key to understanding quotation in a way that sustains its picturing function. When the context is a sentence, the key is as follows. Identifying an expression that is quoted in a sentence consists simply in articulating a sentence in which the expression is both used and associated with something playing the role of quotation marks, and in so doing, articulating the expression. Now, although this key does not explain how the expression quoted in one can be used in one, it might seem to make room for the following explanation. The expression associated with the quotation marks does not perform the semantic function that it performs in sentences in which it is not so associated. So in the case of the expression associated with the quotation marks in one, the function of referring to a certain man, rather it performs the distinct function of referring to itself. Anscombe herself advances this explanation and it might seem not merely to acknowledge the key, but to turn it by making sense of how the expression that's quoted in a quoting sentence can equally be used therein. But this is a chimera. Articulating the, quoting, the quoted sentence, the quoting sentence identifies the sentence and in so doing identifies the expression associated with the quotation marks. But the explanation fixes it that this does not identify the quoted expression. That's achieved not merely by articulating and in so doing identifying the expression associated with the marks, but by understanding this expression and in so doing identifying its object. The articulatory identification of this expression no more serves to identify its object than the articulatory identification of any referring expression identifies its object. Far from turning the key, the explanation discards it. And in so doing, it reinforces the lesson of the difficulty. If quotation is a matter of picturing, then it's not a matter of referring at all.
Short of this explanation, however, it might seem that because the expression quoted in one is used in one, it must refer therein to a certain man, and as such one must say something absurd. But an assumption holds this appearance in place. Namely, that if the expression quoted in a sentence is used in the sentence, then it is what Evad Kimi calls a categrammatic unit, an element in a sentence with the form of reference and predication. Each of the accounts of quotation that we have rejected assumes that a quoting sentence is a sentence of this form, in which a categrammatic unit performs the office of quotation. The unit refers to an expression and the rest of the sentence says something of the object of this unit. But the lesson of our reflections is that if quoting is picturing, then the quoted expression is neither a categorimatic unit nor the object of such a unit, but rather what Kimi calls a syncategorimatic unit, an element in a sentence that is not of this reference and predication form. Well, let's say, um, in the first case provisionally, but it will be explained, that a sentence of this form is an expression of consciousness, and a quoting sentence, which X hypothesis is not of this form, is an expression of self-consciousness. A quoting sentence, so understood, identifies the quoted expression in just the manner that the key prescribes. And I think we can better understand the idea of such a sentence, and with it the idea of self-consciousness that I've just invoked, by reflecting on how this idea addresses the following question. Can a sentence be, at once, quoted in a sentence, and yet preserved in its directedness to the world? So consider a sentence of the following form, seven. Uh, P is true. It is, I think, natural to think that a sentence of this form preserves the quoted sentence in its world directedness, in that an assertion of a sentence of this form is inter alia an assertion of the quoted sentence. The problem is that if the quoted sentence is either mentioned but not used in such a sentence, or used but not as a sentence, rather as a term that refers to itself, then an assertion of such a sentence is an assertion not of the quoted sentence, but of a distinct sentence in which the quoted sentence figures only as the object of a referring term. And this comes out in the difference between sentences of the following forms. Um, eight, P and not P, and nine, P is true and not P. We might think that just as a sentence of the form of eight is formally a contradiction, so is a sentence of the form of nine. But if quotation is a matter of reference, then this cannot be right. The sentence negated in the second conjunct of a sentence of the form of nine might be the very sentence that's quoted in the first, but this sameness cannot be recognized without understanding a categorimatic unit in the first conjunct that refers to a sentence. Recognizing the sameness of the sentence negated in the second conjunct of a sentence of the form of eight and the sentence used in its first conjunct does not require understanding any such categorimatic unit. And for this reason, there's an obstacle to acknowledging a sentence of the form of nine as formally a contradiction that doesn't stand in the way of acknowledging this of a sentence of the form of eight. 
But if a sentence of the form of seven were an expression of self-consciousness, then this obstacle would lapse because the recognition of the sameness of the quoted sentence and the negated sentence in nine would no longer require understanding a categorical unit in the first conjunct that refers to a sentence. And consider by contrast a sentence of the following form, uh, this is 10, A said P. It's natural to think that unlike a sentence, of, unlike an assertion of a sentence of the form of seven, and a certain an assertion of the sentence of the form of 10 is not an assertion of the quoted sentence. And this comes out in the fact that a sentence of the following form is not a contradiction. This is 11. A said P, but not P. We might think, however, that the sentence negated in the second conjunct of a sentence of this form is the very sentence that is quoted in the first. And as such, we might think that a sentence of this form is formally not a contradiction, but a falsification of the quoted sentence. This would allow us to say that the sentence quoted in a sentence of the form of 10 is equally preserved in its directedness to the world. That the quoted sentence in a sentence of the form of seven is so preserved comes out or is shown in the fact that a sentence of the form of nine is formally a contradiction. And that the sentence quoted in a sentence of the form of 10 is equally so preserved comes out in the fact that a sentence of the form of 11 is formally a falsification of the quoted sentence. In each case, the world directedness of the quoted sentence is reflected in the formally significant logical nexus between the sentence in which it is quoted and its negation. As before, however, if quotation is a matter of reference, then a sentence of the form of 11 cannot be formally a falsification because recognizing the sameness of the negated and the quoted sentence would require understanding a categorical unit in the first conjunct that refers to a sentence. And then we should, I think, really speak of a sentence of the apparent form of 11, for the real form of such a sentence would have to be given differently. And to bring this out, um, suppose that what follows said in a sentence of the apparent form of 11 is a quotation in the sense we introduced right at the start of the paper. And suppose that this quotation is a name in the specific sense introduced there. Then the real form of um, such a sentence would be given by 12. A said B, but not P. The point would not be substantially affected if the quotation in such a sentence were a definite description. For then the real form would be given by 13. A said the G, but not P. And a similar consequence would follow if Davidson's account of quotation were assumed. For then the real form would be given by 14. A said that, but not P. Um, of course, Davidson would um, no doubt insist on placing a dot in that which gives the real form, or what he would call the real form, in power taxes with P, perhaps by trying to give the real form as 15, P, A said that, but not P. But this is why his account is a con. 14 removes the con by refusing to give the real form in a manner that's apt to trick us into thinking that the articulation of the supposedly quoted sentence is internal to the capacity of the demonstrative to perform its semantic function. In contrast to each of these accounts, the so-called explanation that understands expressions associated with quotation marks as self-referred 
That doesn't specify how the quoted expression, sorry, that doesn't specify how reference to the quoted sentence is achieved, whether in the manner of a name, a description, a demonstrative, or a referring expression of some other kind, if such there be. But effectively the same point applies. If we let the sign for a singular referring expression be A, then on this view, the real form would be given by 16. A said A, but not P. And no sentence of the form of 12, 13, 14 or 16 is formally a falsification, just because if the sentence negated in the second conjunct is the very sentence that is said to be quoted in the first, then recognizing this sameness requires understanding a categorimatic unit in the first conjunct that refers to a sentence. I say said to be quoted because each of these renderings makes vivid that if it gives the real form of a sentence of the apparent form of 11, then the supposedly quoted sentence is not articulated in articulating a sentence of this apparent form. And as such, given the picturing function of quotation, a sentence of this apparent form is not really a quoting sentence at all. To acknowledge that a sentence of this apparent form is really of this form is to acknowledge that it is really a quoting sentence. And that removes the present obstacle to acknowledging that it is formally a falsification. The repetition of a sentence is an aspect of what is articulated in articulating not merely a sentence of the form of eight, but sentences that are really of the form of nine and 11. And the recognition of the sameness of the sentence that is quoted in the first conjunct of a sentence of the form of nine or 11, and the sentence that's negated in the second conjunct is a moment in the articulation of such a sentence. And as such a moment in perceiving it, in the sense of perceiving, that we've taken for granted in this essay. This sense of perceiving is not merely of great interest. It is fully intelligible only in the light of the conception of quotation and so of self-consciousness that we have developed and vice versa. Now from this conception of quotation, many consequences follow for many of the fundamental ideas of philosophy, for the ideas of truth, language, meaning and judgment, for example. Thinking through these consequences is a project that the present essay seeks to engender. Executing this project must be for another occasion or another series of occasions. The outstanding task for now is to shed some light on the sense of perceiving that we've presupposed throughout. Suppose that someone sees someone who satisfies a certain definite description. Let it be the editor of soul. Then the following is a true sentence, 17. A sees the editor of soul. It does not follow, however, that 17, and specifically what follows the verb, expresses how the editor of soul is given to the perceiver in the case of perception that it reports. Contrast the following sentence as it occurs on the perceiver's lips at the time he sees the editor, who's 18. I see this person. 
Suppose that this sentence in this historical occurrence, and specifically the demonstrative after its verb, not merely refers to the person seen, but expresses how he is given to the perceiver. Then it expresses sensory consciousness. Specifically, it expresses a sensory way of being given an object, the very way in which it's given to the perceiver. By contrast, suppose that 17, and specifically the definite description after its verb, does not do this. Then, whereas 17 is a report from outside the sensory consciousness in which the object is perceived, the occurrence of 18 is a report from within. And of these two kinds of report, the report from within is fundamental insofar as the idea of perception that both reports employ, just as that that Anscombe advances in her paper, The Intentionality of Sensation, namely the idea of being given an object in a certain sensory way. But this idea cannot exhaust the idea of perception. The idea of perception is the idea of a certain kind of original manner of identification. And we've seen that there's an original manner of identifying a linguistic expression that is not a matter of referring to it, and as such, not a matter of being given it in any way, but rather a matter of articulating it. We've taken for granted that this manner of identification is a kind of perception. And we can shed further light on it by reflecting on how cases of perception of these two different kinds what we might call object perception and articulatory perception are to be reported. Although the idea of perception advanced by Anscombe conceives of sensory consciousness specifically as a sensory way of being given an object, it equally conceives of it generically as that which is expressed in some manner by a certain kind of report of a case of perception. If what, if what follows the verb in such a report is a demonstrative that refers to what is perceived, then it expresses sensory consciousness in that it expresses the sensory way in which what is perceived is given to the subject. But if what follows the verb articulates what is perceived, then it does not express a way of being given what is perceived at all. Rather, it is what is perceived. And this constrains the form of the report accordingly. If the name Smith were perceived, for example, then this very name would follow the verb in the sentence that constitutes the report. But the report could not be constituted by the following sentence. This is 19, I see Smith. An historical occurrence of 19 reports a case of perceiving not the name of a man, but a man, just because the name Smith figures in 19 as referring to its object. The name would rather need to be associated with quotation marks, as in 20, I see Smith. And given the understanding of quotation at which we arrived, this is just to say that the name would need to figure in 20 as a syncategorematic unit. It follows um, that the report constituted by 20 is itself an expression not of consciousness, but of self-consciousness. 
But this does not mean that it is not an expression of sensory consciousness. On the contrary, as it involves quotation, it expresses self-consciousness. But as a report of a case of perception, it equally expresses sensory consciousness. It expresses sensory self-consciousness. Only through the idea of this kind of perception is the idea of quotation intelligible. And only through the idea of sentences that involve quotation is the idea of this kind of perception intelligible in turn. These sentences may be said to report these cases from within in that they express the sensory consciousness in which what's perceived is perceived in these cases. But as they are not cases of being given an object in any way, the contrast between reports from within and reports from outside, which holds when perception is, is conceived as the givenness of an object in a certain sensory way, that contrast has lapsed. But it's not only the idea of quoting sentences that depends for its intelligibility on the idea of this kind of perception. The I perceive must be able to accompany all my linguistic expressions. That echoes Kant's way of formulating the idea of self-consciousness. The I think must be able to accompany all my representations. And in both of these formulations, the use of the first person in the phrases my expressions and my representations is utterly non-restrictive. To focus on the first formulation, its point is that it's internal to the very idea of language that its expressions are capable of being perceived in sensory self-consciousness, and as such capable of figuring as syncategrammatic units inside the quotation marks in the context I perceive. The distinctive office of quotation, an office that this context I perceive itself performs, is to enable language to exploit its capacity to be so perceived in order to take itself as its topic in a non-objectifying way. And it's not merely reports of cases of the perception of language that express sensory self-consciousness. If an expression is quoted in a sentence, then it is perceived in the sensory self-consciousness that the sentence expresses. Unlike an historical occurrence of 18, which expresses sensory consciousness through an element of its content, specifically through the demonstrative, a sentence involving quotation expresses sensory consciousness as the expression of self-consciousness that it is. The idea of sensory self-consciousness is evidently Kantian in resonance, um, but I think it goes beyond Kant in an important respect. As an idea of sensory consciousness, it is an idea of the presence of a sensible manifold spread out in time and space the manifold of linguistic expressions. But as an idea of self-consciousness, this manifold is not a manifold of objects, in that its elements are not given in any way at all. I do not think myself that Kant can acknowledge this idea of sensory self-consciousness. And I'd like to end by tracing this idea, somewhat ironically, given its post-Kantian character, but also I think significantly, to a pair of pre-Kantian sources. First to uh, ancient Greece, and then finally to Mary England. 
So at one point in the Sophist, um, Plato argues against the um, Parmenidean idea that being is not a manifold of beings on the ground that insofar as being has a name, such as being or the one, then there is such a manifold for there's both being and its names. But when Parmenides said that being is not a manifold of beings and, quote, all else is mere names, he didn't think he was contradicting himself, at least so Anscombe says. And in a late essay, Anscombe argues that he wasn't on the ground that the difference of names is, as Anscombe puts it, a difference in ways of thinking of an object and not a difference in what is thought of. Only if the difference of names were a difference in what is thought of would it make sense to say that there is a manifold of names. Names are not things that there are. They're not beings in that they are not objects of reference. And as such, their manifoldness is no threat to the oneness of being. There's an insight here that I think is detachable from Parmenidean monism. Let it be granted that being is a manifold of beings. There remains something right in the idea that the manifold of names is not such a manifold. Considered as present to consciousness in the manner that has concerned us in this essay, names are not objects, but aspects of, of subjectivity, in that they are not given in any way, but are rather the ways in which objects are given. And yet, even though considered as present to consciousness in this manner, they are objects, they are aspects of subjectivity or consciousness itself, and so are not given. Nonetheless, we see them, or more generally, we perceive them in the sense of perceiving that's been operative in this essay. That is the wonder of signs. And it's what the phrase sensory self-consciousness is intended to capture. But we might prefer, as a way of capturing this idea, the, uh, the formulation from uh, from the bard that figures in the epigraph. Speculation turning to itself or self-consciousness rests on an element of the visible that is not that not merely is present to consciousness, but is consciousness. And there's nothing strange about this element. We traffic in it every day and we're doing so right now. It's nothing other than language. And in its mirror, consciousness sees itself. Philosophical reflection, as this essay has sought to practice it, just is an expression of sensory self-consciousness. And for this reason, the parts of this essay that comment on its own quoted expressions do not objectify these expressions, but take them as their topic by exploiting the expression's capacity to be articulated. As this essay is a philosophical reflection, it perforce employs the very non-objectifying discourse that it seeks to bring into focus.